Folks, this is Screen Watching. My name, Dan Barrett. I'm a man from the future. Simon Foster is a man from the 1980s. Somehow, we come together, we talk about screen, we talk about movies, we talk about TV shows, we talk about video games, or at least we are this week. What? We talk about sitcoms from the 70s. Sorry, Simon, we're more familiar with that now. Uh, now. Look, it's all going on. This is Screen Watching. This is not like TV, only better. Television! Teacher! Mother! Secret lover. What, that's it? That's your movie? Well, I said that I had an idea for a movie. This is a pretty big week. We've got movies we're talking about. Simon, excuse me, Simon, this is like a man who goes to a date and will start ordering for the lady, or a man who orders for the other man he might be on a date with, or however the other person chooses to identify. Either way, <laughs> I'm ordering for you. Simon, my power here, is going to review a film called The Master Gardener. I have no idea what that is. It doesn't sound very interesting, but maybe it is. We'll find out. I'm going to talk about a TV show called Obliterated. It's on Netflix. You may have seen this already. We're going to talk about the brand new anime feature film, the very last one from probably the um, greatest creator that anime has ever known. Uh, the film is called The Boy and the Heron. We're going to discuss that. We're going to look at the legacy of Norman Lear, uh, maybe the most defining voice of American sitcoms. That isn't Larry David. Uh, gosh, what else are we going to talk about? There'll be references to Grand Theft Auto 6. We're going to talk about some Merry Little Batman. There's going to be Godzilla Minus One. We've got a special co-host that people on our video feed can see. It is Godzilla himself. Sorry, Mr. Godzilla, because I respect him. Folks, we've got a really big show. Uh, where are my manners? Simon, how are you? And will you pick up the check? Uh, I'm happy to pay for anything as the only person here who doesn't have a job. I Apparently it falls to me to pick up the check. Um, I'm well, Dan Barrett. Hello, screen watchers. Hope everyone's very well out there as we swelter here in the Sydney heat on the eve of what is going to be the hottest day of the summer. Um, I've got all the doors open and the fan on, so at times this may sound like an outside broadcast. We'll have the planes going past, uh, the ambulances of Burns Bay Road. That was a, a beautiful Peter Carey novel. It's also right where I live. Um it's good to be talking with you, Dan Barrett. It's a, a lot to chat about this week. A very, very meaningful week with the passing of, of uh, Norman Lear and with the release of this extraordinary new anime film from, uh, let me get the name right, Hayao Miyazaki. Yes, I know, her, of course, who it is. So let's get started. It stinks. So, Simon, there's this thing on the rundown called The Master Gardener. Often mm. on this podcast, I'll say, I've no idea what this is. And then you'll start talking about it. You're like, oh, wait, no, I actually know exactly what this is. Right now, I have no idea what this is. Let's play a clip and then you can tell us all about it. The Nandina is a species of flowering plant native to Eastern Asia. The smell at certain times of the year gives you a real buzz. Like the buzz you get just before pulling the trigger. Before we start getting emails, I should point out that it's called Master Gardener, screenwatchingpodcast at gmail.com. Yes, I know I wrote the on the running sheet, but it's actually without the the. Uh, Master like Gardener is in, Exactly. Uh, Master Gardener is the new film from the great Paul Schrader. Now, if you're of a certain generation, you know exactly oh, who right, Paul right, Schrader right, right. is. He did uh, the Taxi Driver script. He has so many classic films on his resume as a writer. And he's also a sometime director. And as he turns 77, he has built a, a body of work, certainly with his last three films, that look at a very damaged person who has started a new life for themselves, um, but at the same time that uh, the horrors of their past lives do come back to haunt them at some point. Schrader, this is a, a classic sort of Schrader anti-hero type of character. He did it in First Reformed with Ethan Hawke back in 2017. Then he did it with The Card Counter with Oscar Isaac. And now he's doing it with Joel Edgerton, our own Joel Edgerton, um, Uncle Lars, uh, as Narvel Roth. Um, he is a meticulous horticulturalist who's working 
for um, Sigourney Weaver's um, kind of dowager, I guess you could say, in old English speak. But she runs this huge estate, and and he has a very intimate relationship with her, not only as the the the, the master gardener of the title and the someone who runs all the the staff there on the the huge grounds but he also has a a love affair with Sigourney Weaver going on Sigourney <gasps> introduces into that dynamic I know it's quite a buzzy sort of thing and and Sigourney who is still stunning at her age and I say that with absolutely all due respect she's one of the most beautiful women ever to step in front of a camera she has some very sort of graphic moments with Joel Edgerton in this that caught me a little bit <gasps> by surprise her character then introduces her niece, played by Quintessa Sindel, um, <gasps> into the narrative. Uh, and she is a young woman herself with a very troubled past. Um, and she's been sort of welcomed into the, the gardening team um, that that novel that Joel Edgerton runs. What we don't know is that Joel Edgerton is actually uh, being hidden away by the authorities as part of a witness protection scheme. He um, ratted on his white supremacist mates at one point and had to change his life entirely so they wouldn't hunt him down, which as soon as you find out, you know that that's going to re-enter the story. How, having said that, not in the way you expect. So what you have is this... Um, very the first half hour of this, it's almost like a Merchant Ivory film. It's very slow, very buttoned up collars, very sort of grand estate and shots of flowers and Joel Edgerton voiceover sort of saying what sort of species and subspecies and genome they are. Um, but then the dark past starts to rear its ugly head. Um, Isai Morales turns up as the uh, official, the, the, the FBI agent who helped hide away Edgerton's character, and things start to unravel as Edgerton and the niece um, get closer. Um, really bit of quality filmmaking, beautifully written. This is um, obviously from a, 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 an elderly gentleman who's matured into a really fine filmmaker, um, of the three of his sort of damaged hero stories, I, I still prefer First Reformed. If you haven't seen that, it's Ethan Hawke's best ever performance um, and it, it's absolutely worth tracking down. It has some truly shocking moments in it. Uh, Master Gardener doesn't go there. This is a bit more of a romantic story, a bit more idealistic story, um, but still a, a really terrific bit of storytelling. And Edgerton continues just to develop as um, a really assured and really sort of powerful leading man presence so master gardener it's in fairly limited release it was actually it did the festival circuit almost 18 months ago so it's taken a while to get here um but it's definitely worth a look yeah so i am such a fan of first reformed like that film just oh, good. came and went with nowhere near the attention it deserved because that film is just mm, a stonking good. masterpiece like that is incredible yeah. viewing so much so that when so it was the next film was the card counter when Paul Schrader counter. released that movie, yeah, I was like hesitant to actually see it because I was just concerned it wouldn't live up to my expectations as based on First Reform. Like it was just, mm. I don't know, such a powerhouse film. I'm yeah, very invested in that film. Very fortunate to have seen, on my only trip to the Rotterdam International Film Festival, I got to see First Reform world premiere there and then interview Mr. Schrader. Wait, um, that's which... where I saw it. <laughs> in Rotterdam? <laughs> He was a fascinating man to talk to, um, very understanding of this sort of uh, quite starstruck young, I say young, starstruck um, interviewer. <laughs> Simon, it was only who, 2017, come on. <laughs> got, who, who started, I started to raise points about how he was responsible for one of the first drafts of my favourite ever movie, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and he was so thrilled to talk about that. His script is available online to read if you, if you want to deep dive into that. So uh, a, just a, a great old-school Hollywood storyteller um, now telling some of the most interesting films of, and narratives of his career. So it's called Master Gardener, drop the the, and it's in some cinemas around town through Transmission Films. Yeah, kind of interesting the way that Close Encounters of the Third Kind and First Reform both have very similar themes about absent fathers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Uh, just a follow-up thing. Uh, Quintessa Swindell, the hmm. um, Where do I know who's from? in this one. Uh, well, you know them from uh, probably the finest film of last year, or maybe it was this year, Black Adam. 
and they played the character of Cyclone. <laughs> oh, okay. Good to know. Yeah. She does some tough stuff in this. She's a strong actress. And, oh, they're a strong actress, and they um, and they bring some really sort of. She, she, they've got a great chemistry with with Joel Edgerton. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, folks, let's move on. There's a brand new Netflix TV series. It is from the, I'm going to say, creative team uh, behind the Karate Kid spit-off Cobra Kai. It's called Obliterated. We just saved Vegas. And if the world knew what we did here today, they'd want us to party like the rock stars we are. Are you feeling it? Oh, I'm feeling it. You feeling it? Bomb you deactivated was a fake. We still have the five kiloton nuclear device. You have until 9 a.m. If you do not comply, the city will be obliterated. I'll admit trepidation going into this one, Simon. There were two things that had me very concerned. One, yes. creative time. One, the creative team behind Cobra Kai. Now, Cobra Kai, I don't know how much of that show you've seen, but the... None. Okay, you're familiar with the fact that there was a kid that once performed karate in the 80s, played by Ralph Macchio, right? Hey, it's the 80s. I know everything about the 80s and nothing about anything <laughs> after it. Yeah, look. Uh, so, Karate Kid spinoff, uh, it takes place, but instead of being like a traditional spinoff or sequel, it actually takes the viewpoint of the bad guy from the original Karate Kid movie, who's now a grown-up man whose life hadn't really played out so well for him. Uh, he's a bit poor and destitute and nothing's really gone his way. Uh, and suddenly he finds himself uh, faced up again against the titular Karate Kid. But both are very much sort of older, nearing the end of middle age life. That's still alive, though. That's still very vital. What it's I found interesting about that program, I'm there right now. Don't worry. Yeah. So, look, what I found interesting about that program was that it was very much told from the perspective of a middle aged man. Okay, but as the series went on, it started growing out its cast of younger people as well. And while it never really quite lost its viewpoint, I did think that the audience changed for it somewhat. It became a little bit more inclusionary, where it was talking to uh, people of my vintage and going up to your vintage, sort of thereabouts, probably the midpoint between the two. I was definitely, I was a karate kid, like 1984, so I was four years old when that came out. So kids of my age pretty much sort of grew up with that as a VHS classic. Okay, um, you know, a little bit later on in life. But the show was attracting an audience of people sort of roughly my age, but you would assume that it's probably more sort of them watching it with their kids. So it becomes a bit more of a family drama with the stakes that are probably no more sophisticated than some of the lower tier episodes of, say, Buffy back in the day. And I used the, word, sure. uh, used the comparison to Buffy fairly advisory in that a lot of the action sequences, again, Karate Kid, you know, there's going to be fight scenes taking place. Uh, there's like a number of fight scenes that just seem very comparable to a lot of the action stunts we used to see on Buffy back in the day with uh, some scenes that are sort of overly lit and overly bright with complicated action that is filmed in a very simple kind of a manner. It was very easy to track a lot of the stunt work taking place with it. Uh, so all that is to say that the writing was never overly complicated. It was a little bit sort of too base at times for a mature age audience, but then it probably actually fit that family space really quite nicely. I think it just took a little bit of time for the show to find that full audience for itself. Anyway, show hugely successful, did very well once it moved to Netflix away from its original home of being a YouTube original which meant that YouTube actually paid some money for this TV show to exist on its streaming service. And then- Is that still a thing? Does it. that still happen? No. Well, they got they got out of the original space, uh, except they right. had one successful show, which was Cobra Kai, and Netflix yeah. ended up picking it up. And for half of its run, it was a Netflix original. Wow, okay. So anyway, off the back of the success of the uh, Cobra Kai, the showrunners of that were given the chance to go and make another show. So uh, this is, and I'm presuming I've got my creatives all right here. Uh, you got John Hurwitz, Hayden Schlossberg, Josh Hield, mm -hmm. and I feel there's another person that I've missed the name of entirely. But anyway, these guys, they go off and create their first work for Netflix, which debuted about a week and a bit ago. It's called Obliterated. The premise for this one is this, Simon. 
It's about an elite special forces team. They're in uh, Las Vegas. They're supposed to be stopping a nuclear bomb. They've been at work to try to stop this thing from going off for about like six months. Uh, in the opening sequence, we see them successful. They take out the young Russian guy who's responsible for it all. He's imprisoned. Um, they're all ready to, you know, go their separate ways. And then I'm like, guys, been working on this for six months. Let's just go off and have like a great night in Las Vegas. And then we can go our separate ways tomorrow. That's the plan. They end up going, uh, they get completely effed up, Simon. Uh, there's oh, drug sure taking, do. there's drinking. They have a wild night halfway through the evening after there's been quite a fair bit of nudity and um, ill-attempted um, sex scenes. Uh, one of them gets a phone call and it's like, wait a second, that bomb threat, it was actually a bit of a fake. The mission, it's back on. You've got six hours to stop the actual nuclear weapon from being, you know, let off in Las Vegas. Okay, the so nuke. the nuke, they've got to get themselves physically back together. But the problem is, is that on that night of partying, there was a lot of... Um, revelations that took place oh yeah that well hallucinatory substances but also i'm thinking more in terms of their interpersonal relationships where oh, yeah. a lot of um frustrations were aired a lot of um yearnings revealed and so all of them are coming at this relationship from a fairly fractured place so within six hours they need to physically get their brains back into business they need to mend those relationships and they need to stop a nuclear weapon all the while um telling lots of dirty jokes and showing a fair bit of flesh and uh, oh, yeah. engaging themselves in action adventure, which will absolutely thrill and delight the 14 year olds in the audience and the 14 year old minded. So I said, there were two things that concerned me going into this one, the creators of Cobra Kai involved. The second was a text message from Simon Foster saying, I'm really enjoying this TV program. Exclamation point, the, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. The term I used, so, the term I used, so, wait a minute, the term those, I used was, I was shame loving this, uh, this, this series, was the, the, this, the term that I used. Here's the thing. If Simon says that he shame loves something, he doesn't have any shame. We know this. We just know he was enjoying it. And that's okay, Simon. Just oh, I was enjoying it, baby. Okay, so look. My problems with this is actually kind of from a very similar standpoint as I had with Cobra Kai, which is that I feel these guys are coming into things with the best of intentions, but I don't think they ever really fully understand who their audience is. So Cobra Kai, as I said, started out very much from a perspective of talking to middle-aged and slightly upper middle-aged men, okay, and sort of trading on their nostalgia for the Karate Kid from back in the day but also talking to an idea of life not necessarily planning out the way that you'd intended. And there's actually quite a fair bit of um, relatable sadness, I guess, that takes place within the first couple of seasons of Cobra Kai. As I said, they did find their way into being more of a family um, action-adventure show, and that at that point, I think the show really started working for what they were trying to do with it. Like, it just seems to lock in with the idea that the sad sack fathers are watching it with their teenage kids and all of them having a great time with it. It kind of feels as though with Obliterated, they've come into it thinking that, well, our audience is kind of the same, but it's not because I feel that a lot of the drug taking, the sex, the nudity, and yes, there's quite a bit of nudity in this one. You see quite a few breasts in the first episode. There's a very sizable peen in the second episode. Uh, it is very raw and very, um, I'm not going to say honest because it's all very stylized and all just sort of overly silly. But if you're a 14 year old, I think you would absolutely lap this up, but I don't think it's mature enough for the older audience necessarily to find their way into it. Um, and it's suddenly, there's so much um, juvenile nudity and violence and silliness that the 14 year olds that it's made for, they're probably not necessarily watching it with their parents either, unless they've got some, you know, uh, very open-minded parents. That's a good point. Yeah, I don't think it's definitely for 14 year olds, although it's definitely aimed at that mindset. I, let me just tell you a quick anecdote. When I put the, I put a Facebook post up saying that I was shame loving this this new series on Netflix and a friend of mine called Ken Taylor got back to me and said I couldn't get past the first episode. It was just awful, which I then He's responded right. to him by to which I then responded to him by saying, "That's ironic, Ken, because it is exactly like the B movie junk that he used to market as a marketing executive at CBS Fox Video, and I used to sell as a video rep for Columbia Tries to Home Video back in the late 80s. This sort of stuff 
turned up this sort of just wild, bawdy, brutal, maybe not quite so graphic as this because we still had a little bit of class back in the 80s, but it, it, it was very much sort of the third or fourth film in a package of monthly releases from CBS Fox or Roadshow Home Video or, or Columbia TriStar Home Video. So I'm not surprised that the team who sort of breathed the new new life into an 80s property in The Karate Kid with Cobra Kai have looked at this and they've thought of directors like Nico Mastarakis, who was a Greek man who just used to churn out these B action movies over and over, um, Jim Wynorski, and there'll be people out there who look at, who will instantly sort of be perking up when I say these names because these are the directors of their B movie VHS youth. Um, this is maybe, I guess, why I'm, sort of reacting to it in that way because I can find sort of smaller I don't want to say the term nuances because it's not a nuance show at all but there are certain references <laughs> to, to there are there are references to the the 80s B the fact that the fact that the MacGuffin is a nuke and it's which was sort of like the standard MacGuffin back in most 80s action films for that to be embraced here uh for the boardiness for the language um I don't remember this much peen in the 80s action films because there's certainly quite a bit of peen in, in this one. You, you haven't quite got to the episode that involves a drill and a and an enormous peen later in the series. But um, uh, I, I, say, I, I can I confirm, to... having, se having seen two episodes, Simon, I can confirm I will probably never see that episode you're talking about. <laughs> Look, it's... And I, I said this in another post during the week that sometimes you just want to eat McDonald's and that's the sort of feeling I got from watching Obliterated. It was just junk TV, but done in the highest possible way. So um, there you go. It's the McDonald's of, of TV releases this week. Look, I mean, it absolutely is. And while I know that I watched this and, you know, like I didn't hate this, but also the show was just a bit too juvenile for me to really want to just stick with it. Yep. Okay, I totally understand there'll be an audience that want to stick with this, but I also kind of, sorry, I just thought of another thing I just wanted to point out about it, but broadly, I kind of feel that there's just so much stuff around right now that I'd like to be watching, and that may just include going back and watching episodes of LA Law from the 1980s, uh, but even so, I'm just going to find that more rewarding an experience than watching this. That said, oh, there's a couple of actors in this that I kind of enjoyed watching for the most part. Um, I think Shelley Hennig, who's the female lead, ended up playing Ava Winters. Like, she's reasonably fun, but maybe just a bit she's sort great. of too conventionally sort of normy to be sort of overly excited about her in this role. But, like, she's fine. She holds it together pretty well. Uh, and also, C. Thomas Howe makes a very memorable appearance um, as a... Briefly, um, if you see the rest of the series, he spends most of the series asleep in a boat. But maybe it'll yeah. kick... I've still got two episodes to go, so maybe it's... Uh he'll he'll pick up and do a bit more but yeah i mean the fact that he's exactly. cast in this uh an 80s what's it yeah. an icon maybe too strong a word but an 80s name well no it's a love letter to you know 80s action adventures but at the same yes. time 80s action adventures were a lot more mature and sophisticated than what we've got <laughs> at playing this mm, yeah, it is simon maybe, just just throw it up to it it's true uh, it's also kind of fun seeing uh, Carl Lumbly as well in this, playing a character that is probably not, because I mean, just considering the nature of the show being about a special elite forces group, uh, there's definitely a bit of a nod to Alias from the early 2000s with his casting in this right. one. Yeah. All uh, right. The other thing, so I've got one other complaint that I just want to make with one it, which point. is that sure. this is eight episodes long. And one of the biggest problems I had with it, and the reason why I think I'll probably just stop at two episodes and not continue on, is that I kind of feel like the format is too long for what this is. It shouldn't be a, you know, um, episodes range between about 44 minutes and 55 minutes. It shouldn't be a seven to eight hour story. Like every episode should be no longer than like 35 minutes. It did feel like every episode, well, of the two that I saw, they just seem to stretch themselves out just a little bit further than they needed to. Like in the first episode, they're in Vegas partying and like that party just keeps on going on and on and on. It's like, well, we get it. We don't actually really yep. need to stick with this for anywhere near as long as you've given it. And then no, in the second episode, they spend way too long in this uh, male review strip club that, you know, that scene should have been a five minute scene that instead blew out to about 15, 20 minutes. And mm -hmm. the show, I think if it was just a bit tighter, a bit more concise, I'd be willing to go with it way more than I was with what is a fairly blow just um 
show of excess, which wasn't as fun as it probably should have been. A bloated show on Netflix. Who would have thought? It's called Obliterated. Yeah, exactly. It is all the uh, all you could hope for and more on the Netflix channel. I raced off to the movies because Dan shamed me last week by saying I wasn't going to see the uh, the new the final <laughs> film from. Um, uh, sorry, Simon. If, if we're going to be using exact language within texts, uh, let's bring this up. If we're talking about shame, um, I don't yeah. think I so much shamed you as much as where's my exact line here. I don't know. Uh, I've lost was, it. A, uh, I well, I said there was a bit of a shame that someone who reviews movies isn't going to review the final movie from one of cinema's greatest masters. Yeah, like I said, you shamed me. <laughs> that's kind of shaming me. Public, just to your face. in public. That's what it was on text. It wasn't on the podcast. Well, it's on the podcast now. Anyway, I went off and saw <laughs> Miyao Hayazaki's "The Boy and the Heron." Mahito. So, you made it. Mother! Have a seat. It's this way, Mahito. A lot of strange things happen in this place. Please join us. I just hope he stays safe. <laughs> so we uh, enter Miyazaki's uh, final film, or so he says his final film, um, in 1943. It's during the Pacific War. And Mahito Maki's mother, Hisako, is killed in a hospital fire in Tokyo. Fun opening to a film. Mahito's father, Shoichi, an air munitions factory owner, remarries his late wife's younger sister, Natsuko. Yes, I am reading this, but I do want to get it right. Um, they evacuate Tokyo and head to her estate in the countryside where they live with several old maids, which have that classic sort of Miyazaki look about them. We've seen in many of his films. Um, Mahito, who's 12 years old, struggles in this new town. He's having trouble with bullies at schools while still dealing with the grief of having lost his mother. Um, but he does become sort of a develop a love and hate relationship with this mysterious grey heron who lives on the estate um, and starts to taunt Mojito. Uh Late one night, he claims that Mojito's mother is alive and tells him to enter this huge mystical tower, which sort of referenced Howl's Moving's Castle, another classic Miyazaki film from way back, and maybe save her and the Natsuku, who's also in there as the as a little girl. Um, so the heron begins to lead them through the grounds and into the tower where they find themselves in an alternate world full of fantastic magic. Um, so what you see there is a, a classic sort of setup for uh, Hayao Miyazaki type storyline. He came out of retirement. He retired officially in 2013 and then came out of retirement um, first to make a short film, but then to uh, oversee 60 odd artists um, in making the boy and the heron now so i'm going to be a little bit controversial here uh in the same period of time in which i've there's been a lot of talk about uh ridley scott as an 80 year old doing napoleon and scorsese as an 80 plus year old doing uh killers of the flower moon uh i've also got a review planned for an 80 something year old woody allen's new film coup de chance and now we got uh hayao miyazaki coming out and doing what those filmmakers have kind of been accused of, and that's raking over some very familiar um, reference points and very familiar images uh, in his latest film, the overwhelming critical love for this film is totally earned. It is a beautiful-looking film, but I think it's a long way from his best film. I think there's a uh, the lead act, the lead character, Mito, is very much a. I guess, a sounding board or a springboard for everything that happens around him. We don't really get to learn too much about this young man, this character. The explorations of grief um, are at times a little bit unconvincing and also a little bit on the nose, like very obvious. The imagery that Miyazaki uses is something that we have seen a lot before of. And I'm a huge Miyazaki fan. I can... I cite sort of Spirited Away and Princess Mononoke um, and Howl's Moving Castle as, as, a, as classics and some of my favourite films. Um, but I also feel he can be a little bit, uh, what's the word, austere or a little bit cold in his telling of the stories. He can create these amazing, these amazing worlds, uh, fantastic sort of fairy tale worlds and fairy tale narratives, um, but then often be a bit of a, a slave to his own 
his own craftsmanship. Um, maybe I'm not sort of saying that right. I didn't walk away from the boy and the heron loving it, while I still acknowledge that it's a beautiful work and a, and a and a major work to go out on as um as one of the greatest animators of all time. So I'll I'll have to stand by that, and I and I stand by it. I know it's at about ninety eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes, but um I might I'd probably give it a three out of five if we did star ratings rather than than a whole rave about it. So there you go. Yeah. No, I get what you're saying in terms of Miyazaki's films. I often feel as though I'm at a slight sort of arm's length away from sort of being fully absorbed and invested in a movie, whether that's, yeah, that's a cultural, like whether that's a cultural thing or whether that's just, you know, part of how he chooses to display his sort of craft. And I just don't quite connect with it. Like, you know, yeah, that's fine. Um, I do appreciate though, like he is a craftsman and oh, yeah. uh, reputation fully earned. I think that he creates some sort of very rich, vibrant worlds, even if I'm not necessarily connecting. Um, I should point out it's been released in both uh, subtitled and dubbed versions, despite desperately wanting to see the subtitled version, just the way my Thursday fell, I could only see the dubbed one. So I heard voices like uh, Robert Pattinson playing the, the Heron, um, Christian Bale, uh, as his as uh, Mojito's father, uh, Mark Hamill's in there, Florence Pugh, Willem Dafoe, Dave Bautista. So he's got some major talent, uh, you know, behind the scenes to do the the dubbing work. Um, but I would also I would always favour the the Japanese language <laughs> subtitle one if I could. So uh, it's out yeah. there, giving a fairly huge release. Gee, it was interesting reading about the way it was marketed in J in Japan. They didn't do any trailers, didn't release any images from it, didn't do any press tour or anything like that. They literally just released this beautifully um, drawn poster saying the latest Miyazaki, the boy and the heron, is in cinemas um, on this date, and that was all they did. And it's op it's taken like close to ninety million dollars around the world. Of huge chunk of which of course is in japan so um he's a national icon and rightly so um just i had a little bit of trouble connecting with his with his latest one so it's in cinemas yeah. as we speak uh just as a thing uh i don't really have a huge problem with um animation being dubbed or subbed one way or the other i do sort of think though it's one thing to say oh there's some major talents involved but nobody's ever really ever used the phrase florence Pugh, one of the greatest voice talents of all time <laughs> my I, I don't, like, look, I love Florence Pugh. She certainly didn't deserve to be smacked in the face with whatever it was that she got smacked with in Brazil over the weekend. But uh, largely I'd much prefer it if it was someone who was actually a dedicated voice artist who was hired to be doing these sorts of roles rather than just a list of, you know, talent that people may have heard of before. I think that there is certainly something that's a little bit sort of gross as an idea of saying that you're going to go and see this movie because it's one of the animation's greatest masters, and yet you don't back that up with a roster of voice talent that is equal to that as a um, idea. Mm. Like, totally like Christian agree. Bale. Like I love seeing Christian Bale on screen, but you know, is he necessarily a great voice artist, or is he someone who is a physical presence as part of his acting? And I don't know. I mean, this is the guy that went. I'm Batman. Like cool, but you know, come on. He, it's probably the only one who brings a real distinctive character voice to this, or creates a character voice, is Robert Pattinson as the Grey Heron. I didn't know it was Pattinson until I Wait, started. Two Batman in one movie. That's too oh many Batman. God, here we go. Well, three if you include Mark Hamill. Was he ever Batman, or was he just a bad guy? He like, was a bad guy. In he the was Batman. Joker. He was a Joker. He was the Joker. Yeah, exactly. So this is very yeah. bat heavy. Oh, absolutely. I didn't realize that. All right, so Pattinson's good. Yeah, yeah you're right. And Ham and and Mark Hamill, of course, is known for his great voice work. So he's in there as someone oh, absolutely who do amazing work. But yeah, you're right. At Bale. no point oh, am I lumping Mark Hamill in with Florence Pugh. I'm pretty sure that's what you said. You were shaming. You were Hamill shaming Pugh or Pugh shaming Hamill. Anyway, this has gone on long enough. It's in cinemas as we speak. Okay, Simon. Let's move on to what else have you been watching? And we do this only because there's some great segues here. Do we go for the obvious segue, which is from one animated feature to another, or do we go on that Batman route? Because I'm going to talk about a little Batman cartoon. This is called yeah, that's time Mer in the week. <laughs> <Mary> <laughs> I suddenly forgot the name of this movie. Uh, Merry Little Batman. Is that the name of it? Merry Little Batman. Yep. 
Yeah. Uh, the premise of this one, this was um, a bit of a backstory. And sorry, Simon said to me during the week, there's no way you can talk about this movie in 45 seconds. And I you claimed to, you said right. to me, yeah, I know. You said to me, I'll, I'll, I can talk about it's 45 seconds tops. And I said back, you've never talked about anything, Batman, for 45 seconds tops. So I'm starting the stop clock now. Okay. Well, I'm going to talk about the background of this movie, but then I'll talk about the movie in 45 seconds. Uh, the background okay. of this movie is that, much like a number of the other projects at Warner Brothers Discovery in the last sort of year or two, uh, they looked at this one and said, hey, look, maybe we can cancel this one and not go ahead with Ooh. it. Uh, there was a couple of things that they looked at and were either going to cancel or on-sell. This one got on-sold, so Amazon Prime Video picked this up, so you'll be able to find it streaming there. But it was originally produced that it would be a uh, Max original, I guess, was probably its origins. Uh, this was part of a suite of productions that was also going to involve a, I think it was a Christmas special as well. And that one was focused around the Steve Urkel character. But I don't think that one got picked up. So no, that's happening. That there's an Urkel. No, no, no. There's oh, an so Urkel animated show happening? out at the moment. Yeah, yeah. No, that's oh, definitely it's not a show. It's on the... It was a movie. I don't know. It's a movie. Well, I'm sure that there's an Urkel Christmas special oh. animated thing on at the moment. So oh, then I guess it got picked up. So that's part of the same yeah. roster of uh, productions. So anyway, okay. they're releasing this, and this is technically a glorified pilot for a, another TV show animated series that they're going to be rolling into, which has also been picked up by Prime Video. Uh, premise of this one is that Batman's son, Damien, uh, he desperately wants to be like his father, Batman, but Batman hasn't actually been Batman for um, Damien's like 10 years old, so we'll say like 9 or 10 years. Uh, Batman, as soon as he found out he was going to be a dad, uh, who the mother is, um, oh, we don't need to talk about that. But as soon as he found out he was going to be a dad, basically he got to business, he cleaned up Gotham City, got rid of all the crime, beautified it. There's a 10-second montage in this one, which is easily the best thing in this, uh, where you see the Batman characters go around and very quickly uh, tidy up Gotham City, get rid of all the supervillains around and change Arkham Asylum into like a childcare center, all that sort of business. Uh, Batman as voiced by Luke Wilson, which is a nice little bit oh, of casting. Interesting. Good, like Luke. Yeah, so you've got that, but it's not from his perspective at all, this film. Basically, the premise of it is, is that Batman has been lured away by a Justice League request, which is a fake request and he doesn't realize it. But Damien's been left by himself with Alfred Pennyworth the butler inside the stately Wayne Manor as some criminals decide that they're going to break in. So it's a little bit like a junior Batman version of Home Alone for the first half of the movie, at least. And right. then it starts expanding right. a little bit further. Uh, my issue with this film is that, I guess, much like Obliterated, I'm not the audience for it. It very much is for your, like, 8 to 12-year-old kids. If you're an 8 to 12-year-old kid, you'll probably eat this up a lot more than I did as a mature-minded Batman enthusiast. <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, that's funny. Yeah, uh, it, you know, I'm, I'm too grown up for this, but it's definitely a kid's film that I think kids will probably have a fair bit of fun watching. Uh, the one issue I'd really flag with it is that I don't care for the animation style in this at all, oh, and I reckon it's probably got a few kids that will find this a bit too ugly to sort of meet the joy that I otherwise experience with this. Okay. All right. It's on Prime Video as we speak. Does that happen mm. often? Can you imagine a a Marvel character being sort of shipped outside of the the umbrella organization that that controls it like it's it's hard to imagine batman <laughs> being put in the hands of this this simon other simon let us talk about the most successful of all the marvel characters on the big screen little fellow named spider guy um spider guy operated by sony as opposed to Marvel. Now, Marvel have come in with the last, with the Tom Holland iteration of it, and are mm. mostly handling the creative, but certainly with a lot of input from Sony as well. Yeah. Um, I'll also point Maybe. to the yeah. number of Spider-Man related animated series and live action things that are about to start cropping up on Prime Video. But that was an old deal contract that problem. That was, a, that was an old contract deal where Spider-Man was sort of picked up by oh, Sony back in the Columbia picture days that is harder and harder to get around. I'm sure if they had their choice, they'd rather have Spidey under the MCU oh, no, umbrella. Abs absolutely. But it just seemed a bit funny that you picked Marvel as the example of, oh, can you imagine a non-Marvel thing coming from? Yeah. 
Well, yeah, but to actually, for, yeah. for, for H, I don't want to get into this. No, but, but for in actually day, for Warner Brothers Discovery to just say, oh, we don't want to do that. If someone else wants to take it, go ahead and take it. That seems odd for them to do with a property like anything Batman. In this day and age of IP control and um, exploitation, it is a little bit interesting that they are doing this. And it's not just Batman or DC related stuff. There's Looney Tunes stuff that's being sort of farmed out around the place reportedly. Like there's a number of other productions that are very traditional Warner's stuff that you will find other, other mastheads. But it's really just a sign of Warner Brothers Discovery needing to make as much money as possible to right the ship after a disastrous business decision of allowing Dis uh, Discovery to reverse purchase the damn thing. Wow. Okay. All right. What else have you been watching, Dan Barrett? You've got a couple of big ones here you've got to whip through. Yeah, so films that you've discussed in recent weeks, but I hadn't seen at the time. So Saltburn, which is the Emerald Fennell movie, which uh, is kind of a dark comedy thriller. actually knew nothing about the movie going into it. Dividing uh, audiences everywhere. Yeah. I have to say, I wasn't really divided. I was just maybe less enthused about it than I anticipated, but I still kind okay. of liked it. It's sort of... Um, Oh, it's very, and I'm trying to think of the name of the character all of a sudden. Uh, Matt Damon uh, playing the Ripley, Ripley character. Yeah, talented, yeah, talented Mr. Ripley. Mr. Ripley. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Uh, yeah, so it's very talented Mr. Ripley, but located in a British country home yeah. for the most part. And, beautiful uh, and if we want another segue. A... Yep, segue away. Sorry, sorry. I was going to say, if we want another segue from previous discussion, if you want a lot of peen on screen, boy, does this film deliver. Oh, no. Simon, have I lost you there? Simon, you're back. Hello? You're completely frozen on me. Yes, you're Hello? back now. Your okay. last thing you, you said was on... if we want another segue. Okay, I'm going to just That's say this again so I can get your reaction. Yeah. Okay. And if we want another segue from earlier in the podcast, if you're looking for a production with a whole lot of pain, boy, does this have you covered? Oh, boy. Yes, you got that right. Old Barry Keoghan does a uh, quite the dance number, uh, flipping and flopping everywhere like a naked boy in the running around the countryside. Exactly. Uh, and speaking of uh, large naked fellows, uh, Godzilla minus one is currently oh, roaring his way through cinemas. Again. Just yep. give the man a pair of pants. There you go. There's your yeah. Godzilla okay. Minus one is beautiful bit of merchandise for those watching on the video feed from uh, my trip to Osaka. Now, what did you think of this? This is getting 100% ratings everywhere and doing huge business all around the world. Don't you put a spoiler on it, Dan. Okay, well, it's not getting 100% ratings around the place, but it is sort of broadly uh, received fairly well. Um, I think this is a film where Godzilla is a franchise. They need to start doing more interesting things with it. And this one, by setting it um, right at the tail end of World War II uh, it's, and sort of taking it up to, I guess, maybe where the original Godzilla movie uh, originally sort of took off, uh, I think mm -hmm. that placing it that way really does give it uh, quite a bit of uh, revitalization. Uh, oh, visually, I yeah. think that it's a uh, very interesting film to watch. Uh, there's a lot that goes right for it. There's a sequence particularly where Godzilla strikes Ginza, which I thought was huge fun to watch on the screen. Uh, that right. said, I think that the, um, at the two third mark in the film, perhaps I wasn't quite checking my watch to know exactly where it was. I think the film sort of slows to a bit of a standstill as there's a lot of character work taking place that I don't think necessarily needed to be done so late into the movie. Um, at that point, it just kind of grinds its I know the parts you mean. Much, but, yeah, I know the parts you yeah. mean. Yeah, exactly right. For the I, most part, I it's I pretty good. I don't disagree with that, yeah. Yeah, it, it sort of doesn't quite um, live up to its potential, but broadly, I think that most audiences get along to this will probably have a pretty good time with it, more oh, so sure. than most other Japanese Godzilla films I've seen in the past. Uh, and then the final thing I wanted to talk about was during the week, they released the trailer for Grand Theft Auto 6, uh, this is a video game. You're going to require a controller in your hand to really get the most out of this. That's a shot at me, isn't it? That's, you're talking about me there. Well, a little bit. And part of why I wanted to talk about the film was because of the Simon Fosters out there who video yeah. games aren't necessarily their bag and, you know, totally get that. Like, you know, just sort of whatever. Cigarette 8-bit baseball was the last game I played. 
What I would probably say to the Simon Fosters of the world, a man who will give a pass to anything that's said in the 1980s, is you will never find a production of anything that reveres 1980s culture and iconography more than the Grand Theft Auto series of games. Hello, this okay. I'm Pete. Did you press play on this trailer, Simon? No, I've not watched it. Okay. Go and watch the trailer. You'll be one of the 121 million people around the world that have watched this trailer since it dropped like three days ago at this point. Oh my goodness. Okay. okay. Well, I am, I'll put it up on our Facebook page um, and yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll comment on it as a, as sort of a live viewing experience. How about that? All right. Grand Theft Auto yeah, 6 so trailer. Watch this trailer. I think you'll have a huge mm. amount of fun with it. And just to put a bit of perspective around Grand Theft Auto 6, because if you're not in gaming, if you're not really orientated that way, I don't think no. people really appreciate the absolute um, powerhouse that this is. So think about this. Um, the game, it's not going to drop until 2025. So we're about a year away from this. What? Actually being close to... Yeah, like this is it, Simon. Like these games take years of development. And also, if you think about the scale of success of the last film, you'll understand why it's such a long sort of lead time on it. So, so is this gameplay footage? Like, is this is this actual footage from the the game as it okay, stands? We'll, we'll get to that in one trailer? second. We'll talk about that in just one <laughs> second. No, no, we will. Okay, so that's a really important thing. Okay, but All just right. to have scale as to what we're talking about here, the two biggest things that will happen in 2025, which is the year this mm. game will be dropped, will be Avatar yeah. three and Grand Theft Auto 6, okay? And wow. if you think about just in terms of box office success, the last Avatar film made $2.3 billion at the box office. Like, that is mm -hmm. monster box office, and I think it's the second highest box office take. I don't think it came up to number one, did it? I can't I remember. It's it like, didn't topple. It's right there. But anyway, like, yep. it's one of the biggest two box office takings of all time, okay, mm. being Avatar The Way of Water. Avatar 3 will do equal, if not better, I would assume. Mm -hmm. So think about that as a benchmark for how good a movie can do. Grand Theft Auto V, which came out in 2013, okay, so we're looking at uh, 10 years wow. ago. And I couldn't believe it's been 10 years because um, that game has been part of my heart and soul um, since it came out. But anyway, I'm not a huge gamer, but like the Grand Theft Auto games, I always make an exception for. And Red Dead Redemption, it's a uh, Western-themed cousin. But anyway, Grand Theft Auto V, since it was released, has made $8 billion dollars since its release, okay? It was the fastest entertainment product in history to pass the $1 billion mark. And oh, from memory, I don't have this in front of me. I'm pretty sure that took about 10 days for that to happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, like- All very true, are... this is a huge enterprise. This is yeah. a huge enterprise. Absolutely massive, okay? And keep in mind, like a good chunk of that $8 billion is from people just playing the game. But then there's also the online subscription service that's been running since then, which continues well, to be hugely popular as well. So, like, this is just a monster property. But, Simon, is there a narrative? Do I need to get on board here? Should I? Is there oh, like ongoing it, characters and all no. that sort of stuff? I don't know anything. No, no. It's everything's just different. thematically, it basically takes all of its cues from like 1980s crime movies, largely. So, mm. think about Scarface as probably a really good template for what became like Grand Theft Auto 4. Well, I can see why the kids love thing. it then, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Cool. But anyway, it's all about criminals. It's all uh, very violent and very funny and um, has, like, great soundtracks. But watch this. Soak up the Tom Petty soundtrack that plays over the top of it. Wow, the question you nice. asked was, is this a concept video trailer or will the game actually look like this? And so okay. when these trailers get released, often there's a lot of concept video and video that gets used in interstitials in the game, but doesn't actually represent what the experience of playing the game will be like. Right. Now, people have the same question about this game because we haven't actually seen gameplay footage, but I did read an article this morning, which was an ex-developer from Rockstar Games, the company that makes this, and he was saying that the footage that you're seeing in this trailer is very representative of the experience you have playing this game. Wow, well, and that is that's a the case, because like, I've seen that footage. Yeah. Like I've seen, I've seen pre-release footage of games being released where they're fighting giant bears in the snow and all those sort of things that <laughs> yeah. we've seen in with with with. And I'm thinking, well, that looks great, and yes, it's movie realistic and photorealistic, and that's great. But that's not the gameplay. So if this is going to be gameplay footage, that's a huge leap forward in terms of the gaming industry. 
Yeah, so look, I mean, this is very much sort of works to the strengths of what the PlayStation 5 will offer and presumably be on um, Xbox as well, so whatever the current generation of that is. Uh, But yeah, Grand Theft Auto 6, this thing's going to be absolutely massive. But watch that trailer and tell me you're not a bit excited by it. Okay, I'm on. I'm on board. Look, I'm always good for any... I mean, that is screen watching. That is what we talk about. And yes, gaming, it's not something we've dipped into too much as part of the podcast, but absolutely there's artists out there. In fact... This has just come back to me. There was a press release this week that the, uh, I want to say, Queensland film sector, the highest level of investment or production sector, the highest level of investment going forward for the next few years will be in game development. So it's a huge, it's getting a lot of our technicians and a lot of our artists and craftspeople um, working on that side of the sector. So maybe we need to look at a little bit more. Grand Theft Auto 6 trailer. Go to our Facebook page and I'll... uh, I'll live stream my reaction to it. How about that? Look at me talking like somebody. All right, what's next? Uh, Let's roll in for what will be a fairly quick intermission. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's intermission time. Yeah, but we did want to mention very quickly the passing and the legacy of Norman Lear. You you take this because you wrote a beautiful piece through the week of your relationship to some of his most famous works. Oh, look, beautiful is probably uh, too big a word for what I wrote about it. But uh, the thing with Norman Lear's project, so Norman Lear, if you're not really that familiar with him, uh, basically TV producer who, heart of Norman Lear is very much in the 70s going into the 80s. This is the guy responsible for... and. His big titles was All in a Family, Maud, and Good Times, but then also The Jeffersons and Stanford and Son, uh, another two big sitcoms of the day. Uh, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman is a um, pivotal TV show in the history of American yeah. TV. It may not necessarily be... Rem- yeah, but like it's not really something which I think has a lot of uh, broad appeal and um, sort of is part of like the well, canon. It's a huge hit that- his other stuff but yeah, if, was, but it, yeah, it was certainly, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but for those that sort of, I guess, maybe respect the evolution of television, like Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman's like absolutely one of the key titles um, in the same way that, you know, the 80s might have, um, you know, ER might have been the biggest show, but Homicide Life in the Street's probably the one that influenced more TV creators going forward. And so Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, very much in that vein of shows. But also through his production company, uh, responsible hits like Different Strokes and Facts of Life and Silver Spoons. And from a lot of those titles I've given you, you'll probably notice that a lot of those characters had crossover characters because that's what he did with a lot of his shows. He would take that one or two characters that are really working in a show, spin them off into being their own thing. Okay, so the sitcom Maud is like the Maud character, the titular Maud played by B. Arthur, was spun out Mm. of an appearance that she made in All in a Family playing, um, I think, Archie Bunker's cousin. Okay. Yep. Uh, the maid from Maud ends up becoming the um, mother in Good Times. Uh, or just, uh, yeah, the maid from Different Strokes ends up becoming the um, house, uh, the woman that sort of looks after the kids in Facts of Life. Like, there's always like a spin off element to sort of carry this through. Uh, but Lee's show is absolutely huge. And what's probably the narrative well maybe not even necessarily narrative but i guess maybe a thematic sort of through line with it all is hugely uh, politically progressive like he was a very sort of left-wing stridently so um guy so a lot of his politics were very much um there on display on the screen all in the family which was about a hardcore republican uh very much a right-wing guy uh it was very much using him as like a bit of a buffoon to sort of explore what was wrong about like right-wing ideologies uh, but yeah, so stridently left-wing, uh, really influential in terms of the sitcoms that he created and bringing a real strength of integrity to a lot of his characters, even if you weren't necessarily politically aligned with, I guess, the life viewpoint of Norman Lear. Like, there's no arguments being made that all of his characters weren't sort of written with a great deal of uh, consideration and that that consideration was very much imbued through the strength of character that each of them have. Hmm. Yeah, it was, and that's very true. In that, even the Archie Bunker, Archie Bunker character of All in the Family, who was the the, the pivotal point for um, so much of what uh, Norman Lee wanted to say in that series, um, it also showed him going through growth and understanding and changing with the times, while not disrespecting him. He they, he, he wrote very human characters. Um, 
and he was able to create relationships on screen that spoke of really like potent and powerful political standpoints, but did it within a very human way, whether that was in All in the Family, whether it was in One Day at a Time, which was another great series that I grew up watching um, about the single mother and the two daughters. And, and it was a, a landmark sort of series in portraying how uh, single mothers and, and working women had to deal with modern problems and modern, very modern children. And, and it, I, Probably for me, my earliest Norman Lear's memories are, are all in the family, which we used to sit around and watch through the 70s um, whenever it was on. My parents used to love that. And I got a glimpse into this really intimate kind of family life and, and politics in, of the American family through that period and, and One Day at a Time, which was a, another show I gravitated towards. So um, like many of the great artists of their period and the great thinking minds, you didn't know the impact they were having when you were sort of growing up with their works. But to look back now, you realise um, what an incredible asset, both artistically and politically, he was to the, the entertainment industry. And it's difficult to talk about Norman Lear productions for me in that uh, a lot of his stuff never really got repeated that much in Australia. So I think we generally got most of these programs on like first run with like occasional sort of repeats. But as someone who, you know, child of the 80s, who very much came online, I guess really towards the end of the 80s, uh, like most of these shows were well and truly wrapped up and just never got much play again. Uh, the ones that did get some play though, so I grew up watching a lot of Maud when I was a kid, which is, I would actually say of all of his shows, probably the most sort of adults and sophisticated. Uh, so Maud, like infamously, there's a two-part episode called Maud's Dilemma, where she goes and gets an abortion. Uh, I can't imagine that I was getting that much out of that when I was a nine-year-old kid watching it at like nine o'clock <laughs> in the morning on Channel 9. Uh, but, you know, it is what it is. Uh, she also had a husband who's like an alcoholic and a womanizer. And, uh, you know, it's just kind of... It's just a lot darker than you'd probably really find on uh, all within the structure of a, of a sitcom as well. Yeah, yeah. like exactly. It, these are sitcom and, works. These this is and proper this funny. handled in a ve- yeah and yeah absolutely. He, he had a great sense of humor about this, and I I I don't recall like, and I'm sure they were there, but were these all his shows? Um, recorded in front of a live studio audience, so they don't, I don't recall. I, I don't recall laugh tracks being a big part of the the Norman Lear experience. These were very. I could always feel the reaction of the audience in in the comedy up there on screen. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Uh, but yeah, so the only ones that I've really sort of have like a strong connection to is Maud because I watched that as a lot as a kid, and also Different Strokes got a lot of play when I was a kid as well. So yeah. I saw a lot of Different yeah. Strokes, but that also was a show that he produced. I'm not sure he's actually a credited producer on it, but he suddenly was involved in the setup of the program as well as, you know, his production company made it. But I don't think it's technically a Norman Lear show in the way that some of the other programs are. Uh, and the same thing goes for Silver Spoons and The Facts of Life. Uh, but regardless, like those are the two shows sort of under his umbrella that you know, I've probably got the greatest connection with. But regardless, uh, Norman Lear, he died on Tuesday, age 101. Uh, he was still vital, uh, still involved in the industry, producing a lot of stuff, was appearing on TV uh, periodically in the last couple of years because they started doing these uh, live in front of a studio audience uh, recreations of his sitcoms. So there was, uh, it was him teamed up with um, Jimmy, um, oh gosh, the good Jimmy, Kimmel. Kimmel? Jimmy yep. Kimmel. <laughs> Um, yes. the good Jimmy. There's a good Jimmy and a bad Jimmy because you've got to bring balance to the force. Exactly. Uh, but they did recreations of an All in a Family episode, uh, the Jeffersons. Um, what else did they do? I don't think they did a Maud. Uh, memories failed me entirely on that one. Yeah, and, I feel they I mean, done to, to, to show what sort of a progressive thinker it was and, and how people recognised him for that, even back in, and I am jumping into the IMDb list here, but he wrote was was involved in writing 33 episodes of Chappelle's show, which was at the time some of the most cutting-edge comedy that was on TV, 2003 to 2006. So it was even a, a sort of a challenging, confrontational comedian like Chappelle recognised that this old fellow could, could bring some smarts to his show um, even later in life. I guess he would have been about 80 when that happened. So incredible talent. He'll be sadly missed. And he's left probably the greatest legacy of all for the uh, for the television industry. Yeah, I mean, greatly missed. Uh, just keep in mind, and this happens never, 
uh, on, I think it would have been Thursday night in the US, all the networks dropped their programming to run a title card. Why did I suddenly have balloons running past my screen on the group chat? Simon, that was weird. I don't know. That's bizarre. Someone congratulated you then. In honor of yeah, Roman apparently. Lear, the fake balloons. Yeah, yes, uh, the but, title card you were mentioning. Yeah, title card appeared on uh, broadcast network shows where every TV broadcast network dropped programming for a moment to run a title card, sort of marking the loss of Norman Lear, which that happens with absolutely nobody. Okay, but it just shows the respect and reverence that the industry have for Norman Lear, who did have success across, I think, every broadcast network at some point. R.I.P. Norman Lear, the great man, has passed away, aged 101. Let's roll straight into these days in history. All right, Dan Barrett, this will test you. December 9, 1965, which group of cartoon strip buddies make their animated TV special debut on CBS? December 9, 1965. You popped this into the rundown a couple of days ago, and I've looked at this, and mm-hmm. my assumption is you're going to be talking about the Archies, but I find that phrase, cartoon buddies, sorry, cartoon strip buddies, a bit weird. So maybe it's mm-hmm. not the Archies. Not the Archies. That's oh, interesting. That? I thought that was going to be a lock for you. It is Peanuts. They debuted the Charlie oh. Bound Christmas special this this on this uh, on December 9, 19, whatever it was. I can't read it. 1965. Yeah. December 11. 1987, which Oscar-winning classic, a takedown of 80s capitalism right when 80s capitalism was happening, was released on this day, December 11, 1987, at one won an Oscar or two. Oh, well, I'm assuming it's Wall Street. It is Wall Street. Won the Oscar for greed, for want of a better word, is good. December 14, 1974, superstar Steve McQueen walks away from movie acting for six years after starring in this action blockbuster, which was released on this day, December 14, 1974. What was the Well, the only film of his that I could think of just off the back of my head that I'd think about as being an action blockbuster would be The Towering Inferno, but I don't know whether that was so early in the 70s. I thought it was a bit later in the 70s, but, you know. No. No, that's the answer. December 14, 1974 was a huge hit, one of the biggest hits Hollywood's ever had. And then McQueen said, no, I'm not going to do this acting thing anymore. I'm going to go around and sleep with Ellie McGraw and do a whole lot of things um, except make movies. And he didn't come back until late in 79 with a couple of duds, The Hunter and Tom Horn, and and then uh, died very young of cancer. So um, strange career choice, but he had to do what he had to do. Steve McQueen, one of the great superstars. All right, birthday quiz. No, not happy birthday. No, not that. Please, no, not happy birthday. All right, Dan Barrett, this is going to be tough. I think you'll, I think you'll get this. You'll figure this out. December 9, 1934, Judy Dench. December 12, 1970, the beautiful Mädchen Amik. December, December 13, 1967, Jamie Foxx. And as a bit of a bolter here, December 14, 1919, the first appearance of Felix the cat now what could those four notable birthday buddies all have in common i have not a clue how to connect any of these people all right all right you ready that's it that's your guess yeah like i I really cannot figure it out okay felix the cat is a cat dame judy dench featured in cats the second credit of his acting career for Jamie Foxx was opposite Janine Garofalo in The Truth About Cats and Dogs. And Machen Amick starred in the Stephen King film Sleepwalkers, which was all about cats. It's a cat show. There you go. It's a tough one this um, week. Sorry, is The Truth About Cats and Dogs actually about cats, though, or is it The Truth About Cats? Yeah, it's, and it's, dogs. it's a grey area, isn't it? But anyway, uh, you know. Screen very... podcast at Gmail if you have a thought on this. Um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you think the, the podcast sort of comes to a bit of a halt with the birthday quiz? Maybe we should reconsider that. Maybe that should start the podcast. Maybe. So you want to halt the podcast at the very beginning? Yeah, that didn't make sense the way I said it. No, people love the birthday quiz. Well, at least three people who answer it every week on Facebook. Um, we do thank you for your... Uh, but 
They answer on Facebook and aren't actively listening to the podcast. Is that correct? Mm, I don't know who actively listens to the podcast. It's background noise. I mean, active is probably a strong word, isn't it? It's a very strong word to talk about our podcast. Let's do our sign-off. What do you do when you're not podcasting, Dan? Uh, Well, I actively put out a newsletter. It's called Always Be Watching. Find us at alwaysbewatching.com. Uh, you know, I've got a day, every day in your inbox, you receive a little email that has the biggest stories in TV, streaming and movies. Uh, sometimes it's about video games as well. I'll occasionally drop in things there just to keep you updated and give you some context in the world, people. And you do it with a personal touch, which I like. Don't just think it's a, a droll sort of industry newsletter. It's not. You bring a, a, a delightful personal touch to it, which has made it must read for me at least three days a week. Screen watching yeah. is what I Wait do when I'm I not do it podcasting. Five days a week. What? Uh, the Screen Watching Podcast can also be found on Facebook at Screen Watching Podcast. If you go there right now, you can win tickets to the Anthony Hopkins film One Life, which is in cinemas December 26th. We're giving away five in-season double passes on our Facebook page. Go to YouTube at Screen Watching. Email us from Screen Watching or at Screen Watching Podcast at gmail.com. And you can also check out some stuff that I do at screen-space.net. And while I've got everyone here, I've locked the program for our Melbourne screening of the of the Melbourne Science Fiction Film Festival, which is happening in late February, some good movies coming out. I'll mention that closer to the date. So uh, thanks for your support on that, everybody. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, folks. We'll be back next week with more screen watching. See you then. <laughs>